Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your week's been good. I'm looking forward to the weekend, but we've got a ways to go before the weekend kicks in because I have a dynamic show for you today, and I'm excited to bring on our first guest. Uh, Natasha Crane is my first guest, and she is just came out with her fourth book. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. So we are definitely living in an increasingly secular society, and those who have a strong biblical worldview, guess what? I think we're kind of in the shrinking minority. So um, Natasha, uh, Natasha put it this way, we are in a culture where feelings are the ultimate guide, happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guess. That's an interesting and provocative uh, sentence. Uh, Natasha, how's your week been? It's going well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. When did your book get released? It's out now, but when did it get released? Yeah, it just came out on Tuesday, on February 8th. So I assume you had a busy week. It has been a busy week. Indeed, it has. I'm looking forward to the weekend also. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you uh, could make time for us. I see that uh, you've got a, a bunch of great endorsements for your book, and it's a great topic because it's uh, so relevant right now today. Um, so thank you for uh, making time today in your busy week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'd love to d- jump in and just find out a little bit about um, Christians believe that there are a majority group in America. Uh, maybe that's not the case, huh? Right. So you have to kind of look into the data a little bit to figure out what's going on, because it's not necessarily obvious right away. But what researchers have found uh, at the Pew Forum, and they're kind of the the big institution that does a lot of this tracking of religious trends in America. And what they found, according to their most recent survey, is that about 65 percent of Americans, if you ask them how they identify themselves, you know, atheist, agnostic, Mormon, Jewish, Christian, whatever the case may be, um, 65% will say, I'm a Christian. Mm. So this is interesting because on the surface, it would seem that, wait a second, the majority of Americans are Christians. But all we can really say from that is that the majority, or actually almost two-thirds of people, identify themselves as Christians. So they take on that label. But it doesn't really tell you anything about what they actually believe. What is their worldview? How do they see all of reality? And so you have to look to other research to sort of tease that out. And that research comes out of Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center uh, from Director George Barna. And what they have found is that when you really dig into it, and they use dozens of questions to get to this, about 6% of Americans have what would be considered a functioning biblical worldview. In, In other words, they're adhering to the basic truths as taught in the Bible and seeking to live their lives in accordance with that. So there's this giant gap between 65% taking on the Christian label, so to speak, versus the 6% who actually have the biblical worldview 
that one might assume is consistent with that kind of label. So yeah, it's it's a really eye-opening statistic when you when you get into it. And it also explains why so many of us as Christians who do seek to have a biblical worldview don't feel like 65% of America is Christian. So we have those feelings and we can see that it doesn't seem like that as a culture, but the data really puts legs on it and says, well, here's why, here's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Natasha, why is secularism uh, so compelling even for Christians? Yeah, that's a really important question, because theoretically, we could be this little tiny minority that's surrounded by a dominant worldview that's not that attractive to us, that we don't get sucked into. That's actually not the case. That's not what we find, because a lot of Christians are blending in secular ideas into their biblical worldview, which is really what the book is about. But when you understand what secularism is, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Ultimately, what it means to be secular, whether you're a country or a person, is that you don't defer to the authority of a given religion or God in your life. So ultimately, it comes back to you. You're the authority. Each person, they have self-authority rather than for a biblical Christian. The the authority is God and through his word, his inspired and authoritative word of God. So it's all about the authority of the self. Well, the Bible tells us why that's so compelling to us, because all of us in our fallen nature want to resort to the authority of the self. This is a worldview that is just perfectly made to attract people based on our human nature, given what the Bible tells us. We all want to go our own way. We all want to resort to the authority of the self. So even as Christians, this can be a temptation when we start to look at people who are saying, well, you should go with your feelings or, mm. you know, you just want to be happy. That's what's important. All these kind of secular ideas, they sound good and they sound compelling to us because of our fallen nature, but they're very much opposed to an actual biblical worldview and how we should be living if we're living for the Lord. Great answer. Um, what would you say are the most significant uh, pressures that you're seeing uh, Christians and people of faith being influenced by? That That's a tough question because there are so many, and I actually go through, there are nine, nine chapters out of the 12 in the book hit on individual pressures in terms of cancel culture and virtue signaling and evangelism. There are all kinds of individual pressures, but I do think that just that underlying framework that we've been hitting on here about feelings being the ultimate guide, happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, God is the ultimate guest. Those tenets, I think, are really the things that are pressuring Christians in every area of their lives. And, you know, you see, especially with the feelings-based mentality, um, you see that everywhere. You see that everything says, follow your heart. And a lot of Christians think they need to follow their heart, but the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. So we have to be careful in what sounds good in secular culture and what's actually good according to the Bible. But we, we get sucked into these, these uh, ways of thinking way more than we actually realize. Same thing with judging. You know, secular culture says all the time, don't judge. Who are you to judge? You shouldn't be judging me because that comes back to the authority of the self, right? You have no right to judge me. And so Christians start thinking, well, yeah, I shouldn't be judging either. But the Bible calls us to judge, just to not judge hypocritically, Mm -hmm. but to discern between what's right and wrong and true and false. So I think those four tenets really summarize the greatest underlying worldview pressure that Christians are facing today. And it just manifests itself in a lot of different ways that I tease out in the book. Natasha Crane is my guest. She's written a book called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. So, uh, Natasha, is is that a family name? Just curious. Uh, the name, the first name, Natasha. Yeah, 
Uh, no, no. My mom was reading War and Peace, and she liked the name. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not Russian. My mom's actually from France, but she just liked the name. So there I go. <laughs> okay, great name. All right. Now, Thank in your you. book, you can you you contrast progressive Christianity with the historic Christian faith, and conclude that progressive Christianity is ultimately a, a secular pressure coming from within the church. Can you explain what? progressive Christianity is and how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, and that sounds a little counterintuitive first, that there's a secular pressure from within the wider church, but it's important to understand, first of all, what what is progressive Christianity? So it can be hard to define because people who would identify as progressive Christians will have any number of beliefs, but the reason that they'll have any number of beliefs is that what unites them is they typically do not see the Bible as the inspired and authoritative Word of God. Mm-hmm. They will see it as sort of man's um, best ideas, maybe about God over time, or maybe not even best ideas, but some of man's ideas about over about God over time, but not necessarily God's truth that will be true for all time. So there's a big difference in how someone sees the Bible. So obviously, if your view of the Bible is not is that it's not authoritative and entirely true and accurate, you're going to be picking and choosing what you believe to be true from that, and you're going to come up with many different beliefs, which is why it's hard to pin down what progressive Christians believe. But here's the thing. Ultimately, if you're not looking to God as your authority, that he has revealed himself in this authoritative way through Mm -hmm. the Bible— Ultimately, you've just put yourself in charge again. Ultimately, your authority is you, and you're right back at the same place as someone who's secular and irreligious. You're right back in that same place of saying, I'm going to be the determiner of what is true. You might have a maybe more appreciation for Jesus than somebody who's purely irreligious, but ultimately you are going to be secular in your view because you are deferring to the authority of only yourself. And so it is a pressure from within the church, within people who would identify as being Christians, because it's ultimately a pressure to come back to yourself as the arbiter of truth. Oh, boy. All right. I know people are talking about deconstructing their faith, and that's kind of a buzzword. I don't know how long that's been around, but tell me what is deconstruction, and and why do you think it's so appealing and, and so dangerous? So deconstruction is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and people will define it in all kinds of different ways. But generally speaking, when someone is saying that they're deconstructing, it means that they are walking away from any kind of belief in the Bible as being authoritatively true. And so usually what that means is that they're deconstructing into more of a progressive Christian view. Most of the time, if someone is completely abandoning any notion of faith, they're going to become an atheist or agnostic. They'll say that they've deconverted, so the language is a little bit different. So it's kind of a a buzzword to say, I'm deconstructing, meaning, well, I'm probably still going to have some kind of Christian label, but I'm not any longer going to look to the Bible as authoritatively true. And so it's sort of a, uh, a progressive Christian indicator, if you will. And this is very appealing for the same reason that we talked about earlier, that ultimately, if people are attracted to wanting to be their own authority on what's true and what's morally right and wrong, and, and what's true about all of reality, if that's appealing, then when you see somebody else saying, well, I'm deconstructing, I'm taking the time to kind of walk away to what I think is true, well, of course, that's going to be compelling to us, too. 
And what I talk about in the book is that a lot of times when especially well-known people, celebrities, musicians who are known to be Christians, when they make some kind of public announcement that they're, quote unquote, deconstructing and they talk about how they're going through this, a lot of times it's crafted very specifically to be sort of a reverse testimony. Instead of, here's what I experienced, and so I'm coming to Jesus, and you should too, it's here's why you should walk away from these harmful beliefs that so many evangelical Christians have today. Here's why you need to do what I did. And they put this kind of glorified term on it of deconstruction. And the way that it's, it's usually written or it's said is that, you know, they had all these questions. They realized they could no longer be a Christian because of reasons X, Y, and Z. No one was answering their questions. And then there's a happy ending. And now I'm happier than ever. And so that's very compelling to people and is sort of dangerous because if you're not well-grounded in a biblical worldview and understanding why these secular tenets that we talked about earlier are, are not consistent with what you should believe, then it's very tempting to look at that and say, oh, well, that person's happy now. They say they're happy. They're at peace. Maybe you're not feeling happiness in your life or you're not totally at peace. And so you look at that and you say, well, maybe they have something that I don't. Maybe I, I should be considering deconstructing my faith as well. So in, in that chapter in the book where I talk about this, I just try to walk people through 10 different uh, ways of really working through doubt in a more truth-seeking way. And that's not to say that everyone who has so-called deconstructed wasn't seeking truth, but these ideas are more to just get people to really think about, okay, how do you evaluate your faith from a reasonable, logical position rather than just saying, oh, I want to follow down this path or lots of people are doing this. And so I'm hoping that that will be helpful to people as they walk through the doubts that they have. Mm -hmm. Natasha, they almost make the word deconstruct deconstruction sound like hip and trendy. Right. That's very dangerous. Yeah. Let me take a break. Yeah. Natasha Crane is my guest. Her book is Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. When I come back, I want to ask her the difference between secular social justice and biblical justice. That's all next. Natasha Crane is my guest. She's written a book called Faithfully Different. She lives in Southern California, and I bet you've got some excitement in the house this weekend for the Super Bowl. We do. We yeah. do. We we are going to be watching the Super Bowl for sure this Sunday. Yeah. Pulling for your Rams? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, my, my husband and daughter are. I'm sort of a mild football fan, but they're excited, so I'm kind of experiencing that vicariously through them. <laughs> uh, Natasha's book is called Faithfully Different. Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Um, I would love for you to uh, talk about the difference between secular social justice and biblical justice. And and tell us why it's so important for believers to understand the difference. Yeah, so that's a big, big subject. That's something we can talk about for a long, long time. So I'll try to break down just a few key points on this. But there is a huge difference between secular social justice and biblical concept of justice. And we've seen a lot of Christians in the last couple of years with these topics coming up a lot more frequently. We've seen a lot of Christians getting pulled into a lot of secular ways of thinking about this. So to break it down and to help people kind of think about 
well, what are the points of differentiation? How are these things really different? I give three questions in my chapter on this that really highlight those differences. The first one is, why are things the way they are? So if you compare that answer from a biblical perspective and a secular social justice perspective, you'll see that we would have vastly different answers to that question. And that's kind of the starting point for everything. It, that if from a biblical perspective, things are the way they are, meaning there is oppression, that there there is injustice in the world. There is marginalization of people. Yes, all these things are true, and we all agree on that. So that's a point of agreement between everyone who's concerned about justice. But when we say, well, why are things the way they are? From a biblical perspective, it's because of sin. There's sin in the world, and because of sin, there's going to be injustice. And we define justice and injustice based on God's character, based on God himself. But from a secular social justice perspective, this is mostly based on what's called critical theory, which is a very complex academic theory that has led to a whole family of theories. And you've probably heard of some of these, like critical race theory, for example, feminist theory, queer theory, uh, post-colonial theory. It kind of manifests itself in all these different ways. But there is one sort of overarching lens that's consistent between them that you can identify this family of theories with. And that's that everyone is divided into groups of oppressors and oppressed. So the people who are oppressed in the society are, according to this theory, oppressed because of social structures that are empowering the oppressors. Mm -hmm. So there are certain norms that have been in place through all this time that in society has allowed this oppression to take place. So why are things the way they are according to these theories? Because of oppressive social structures. And when you take it from these two perspectives as, okay, we have sin, and then we have oppressive social structures, and then you ask the question, okay, number two, how should things ultimately be? Well, from a biblical perspective, we're never going to have a utopia on earth because of sin. So, yes, we should be fighting to right the injustices we can. We're absolutely called to do that as Christians, but we're not working toward perfection on earth. Whereas from a secular social justice perspective, they're ultimately working to right all oppression by overturning and having a revolution to get rid of the existing social structures in place that are blamed for everything in the first place. That's why you see this call for revolution, of throwing out every way that our society has been structured that have, structured that have led to this place where oppression takes place. So if you have totally different answers to those two questions, why are things the way they are and how should things ultimately be, it goes without saying that the third question, well, how do we get from point A to point B, will be completely different mm -hmm. from those two perspectives. And so that's really what I kind of work through in, in more depth in that chapter of just showing that our answers are completely different to these, and they're also opposed. They're, they're not going to be the same critical theory and this whole idea that everyone can be in an oppressor or oppressed group according to their group identity is just not a biblical, a biblical concept at all. Mm -hmm. Natasha Crane is my guest. Her book is Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Speaking of secular culture, I'm thinking of cancel culture. Talk about how that uh, how Christians should respond and, and what kind of uh, risk does this pose to believers today? Well, it 
it's very tempting as a Christian to look around at all these people getting canceled in sort of the, 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 the headlines and all the media that we hear about people who are getting removed from their platforms because they say something that's not okay according to the popular consensus of secular culture. It's easy to look at that and say, well, I'm going to be quiet in my personal life because I don't want to be canceled by friends. I don't want to be canceled at work. I don't want to be canceled in all these ways. But as Christians, we have to understand that we are called to speak truth in grace and love, of course, but we are called to speak truth whether someone responds to that positively or not. We can't get into a habit of thinking if someone doesn't like what I'm saying that I must be doing something wrong, that I must be hateful or I must be mean or I must be unloving or any of those kinds of things. We can't judge the truth of what we're saying by people's response. And that's so incredibly important to understand because if you fall into that trap, you're going to always be silent. And that is maybe going to make you more okay with the world, but it's going to take you further away from what God is calling you to do. So we can't be afraid of cancel culture. We can't let it affect us. This culture needs truth. It needs light more than ever. And we have to be willing to stand up and speak truth while knowing that a lot of people aren't going to like it. And we very well may be canceled out of people's lives, but we have to be willing to do that as faithful Christians. Yeah. We have seen secularism become pretty mainstream pretty fast in a pretty short amount of time. Do you think that America will, will be turning back to more traditional values? I mean, let's try to be hopeful here. <laughs> well, I would, like to, I would like to think that it's, it's a possibility. Of course, everything is possible with God. But I would say personally that I don't see that happening because this is something that's actually been happening over quite a long time. Um, it, researchers estimate that in the last 25 years, the percent of people in America who hold a biblical worldview has decreased by half. So we're looking at 50% decrease over 25 years. This has been happening for a while. But I think the reason it's become so apparent so fast lately is that we have maybe discarded the doctrines of Christianity, the core Christian beliefs over time, but society overwhelmingly held on to the values that were consistent with a biblical worldview, even if they didn't hold the actual doctrine. So they still valued marriage. They still valued human life. They still valued the family, things that have been consistent with biblical Christianity. But today, sort of suddenly, they're now discarding the hangover of those Christian values as well. And so now it becomes apparent to people like it never has before that, oh, wait a second, this isn't a Christian society anymore. Now people are much more hostile toward Christian views. And so it hasn't happened fast, but it's become more obvious very quickly recently as those values get discarded. And now we have so many people who neither hold to Christian doctrine nor to Christian values. Mm -hmm. Just have a minute left, Natasha. You've been a wonderful guest. Uh, maybe give some encouragement for believers who feel discouraged by this ongoing this ongoing culture wars that are happening? Yeah, I, I would say Jesus told us that it would be like this. I mean, he tells us that the world is going to hate us, that the, that the world hated him and will hate us. And so I think we have to take that to heart. Maybe if it's been easier for us in the past, we can look at that and we can say, okay, well, maybe it didn't shine the light on what we needed to do so much. But praise the Lord that now we're in a position where we really have the opportunity to be salt and light in culture and a culture that desperately needs it. And now that we are seen more distinctively as Christians, because culture is so 
vastly different, it does give us a different, uh, it, it does give us rather an opportunity to stand up and say, this is what Christians believe. And here's the evidence for the truth of Christianity. There's a need for apologetics, how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. And we can do that. We have amazing opportunities to be light in this culture, just as we're called to. Mm-hmm. So it is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Natasha, congratulations on your new book. Nice to meet you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, Natasha Crane has been my guest. Her book is Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Up next, we're going to hear from Pastor Brent Kuhlman. We're going to open up the book of John and look at about six verses. That's all next. study the book of John, and I'm so glad I can do a little of that today with Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He's the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Always glad to have him on. He's a great thinker, a great teacher, a good writer, and a good podcaster. Always glad to learn from him and his teaching. Brent, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I love uh, John. We've been studying it uh, here on Faith Radio a little bit. And I love John chapter 20, and I think that's what we're going to jump in today, starting around verse 19. Yeah, this is a delightful text. I mean, it's, it's Easter evening. Um, you know, it's, Jesus is freshly risen from the dead, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And the disciples, they're locked up in a room for fear of the Jews. You know, it, it's, it's dicey business to hang around with this Jesus. You know, they yeah. arrested him and they killed him. They may do the same to us. <laughs> Parallel to, the, to today, I think, not right now. But, uh, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, they're going to come after you. But, yeah, they've locked themselves up in a room. And let's, let's keep this in mind, too, Bill. The context, the larger context here in John is these disciples who are locked up in the room, they've sinned against the Lord Jesus, you remember, um, Peter denying him and all the rest of them, you know, they, they ran away and they fled because, again, it's dicey business hanging mm-hmm. around this Jesus. So they've all sinned against him. Now, think about it this way. If you've ever sinned against somebody, um, you expect them to sin right back at you and in spades. So if I'd take my fist and I'd clench it and I'd hit somebody in the jaw and break their jaw, I might uh, put out my chest and brag for a while. But the next day I'm looking behind myself, looking behind me all day long, wondering when the retaliation's coming, because that's how the world works. Now, these guys, again, they've sinned against Jesus, and then all of a sudden he shows up. He doesn't even knock. Now, can you imagine what these sinners think? Oh, my word, what's he's, what, what is he going to do to us? Because mm-hmm. they've sinned against him. And this is why this text is so delightful, because the one who's been sinned against, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes and he, he delivers the forgiveness of sins that he won for them and for all on the cross when he says, peace be with you. <laughs> and that's, that's, I forgive you. I'm at peace with you. Wow. I'm not at war with you. You're forgiven. And then, then the text says that he shows them his hands and his side. Now, you know what they'd see with his hands and side. They, they would see his Good Friday wounds because that's where the peace comes from. Oh, and, and now the, since I mentioned wounds, you know, Isaiah 
prophesied that it would be by his wounds we would be healed. You remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he shows them his wounds. Oh, and, and he doesn't cover them up. That's, that's another good thing. He doesn't cover – his wounds are showing, which again reminds us all of where the forgiveness, where the peace with God comes from, his Good Friday death by which he atoned for the sin of the world. And now he comes to these sinners, and he delivers that forgiveness to them with these words, peace be with you. And then their fear turns to joy. They were glad when they saw the Lord. And then, oh, isn't this lovely? He says, peace be with you again in verse 21. (laughs) I don't know about you, but in the Lutheran Church, Missouri, Senate, the temptation is, well, you already told us we were forgiven once, Reverend. (laughs) Why are you telling us again? (laughs) This is a double barrel of peace all in about one verse, 1.2 verses. Yeah, it's like, why speak it a second time when you've already said it? But, But faith doesn't talk like that. Yeah. You know, faith just simply delights in receiving whatever the Lord has to give, and how often he gives it, even if he's going to give out a double piece here on Easter Sunday, Sunday evening. Um, so he, he speaks that piece twice with them. You're forgiven. I'm not at war with you. All right? So then with that second piece, he sends them to do something. This is very interesting. He says, as the Father has sent me. And that, that verb in the Greek is where we get the word apostle. So Jesus is the first apostle in this sense, as the Father has sent me. He's been apostled by the Father, sent, because apostle literally means sent one. So as the Father has sent me, now Jesus says, even so now, I'm sending you. And for this task then, he gives them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, breathing in the Bible is huge. You know that, don't you? I do know that. Yeah, so he breathes on them just as he once breathed over the waters of creation in the beginning in Genesis 1. Uh, Just like when he once breathed into the nostrils of Adam, uh, turning his lifeless clay into a living being. Uh, Breath and spirit, by the way, are the same word in Greek, and and so is wind, by the way, (laughs) in case you're thinking ahead to Pentecost and Acts. But with Jesus, with his breath and words, I'm going to say this again for emphasis. With Christ's breath and words come the Holy Spirit. So here in John 20, you have, I'll be provocative, you've got a little Pentecost going on or a preview of what's going to come 50 days later. So with, with, uh, with the task of being sent, he equips them with the Holy Spirit, and here's their task. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, so just as Jesus came and forgave these sinners, so now he he takes these disciples, and now they're sent ones. Now they're apostles, and they are to forgive sins uh, of sinners as well. And he authorizes them, you see, to do this. Because there's only one forgiver, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he authorizes these men to speak his word of forgiveness. Um, what's interesting about this text, if you've, if you've done some really deep digging into the text um, in the Greek, uh, so there's an argument about the tense of the verb. Is it perfect? Is it present? Or is it future? And then here's what I mean. The sins you forgive have been forgiven or 
are forgiven, present tense, or will be forgiven, future. If you look at the Greek, you've got all three as options in the critical apparatus. So which is it, I always ask? Which would you rather have, forgiveness past, present, or future? <laughs> I, always, I always like to say this, well, how about all three? Because that's the way faith would have it, every way that the Lord has to give it. So in other words, in the perfect tense, it would be, well, the sins you forgive have been forgiven. In other words, they've been done to death on Calvary's cross. It's a done deal. Um, there's nothing more to add to his It Is Finished sermon that he preached from the cross. Or present tense, in other words, the sins you forgive are forgiven, right here in your hearing. As uh, Christians hear every Sunday from the pastor when he says, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then how about future tense? Yeah, the sins you forgive will be forgiven on the last day, judgment day, when the Lord appears to judge the living and the dead. So I'm saying with this future, the word of forgiveness from the Good Friday cross holds true yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I know a lot of people, this is a chicken bone in a lot of people's uh, throats when they hear this, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. And that's why I said Jesus authorizes them to do this. Mm -hmm. He's the author of it. So I'm going to repeat, there's only one forgiver, it's Jesus. But how does he speak that forgiveness today? He uses his creatures to do it. So, for example, in a family, um, when a husband sins against his wife, the wife forgives him for Jesus' sake. And who's, who's forgiving? Jesus, through the wife. When a, when a son or a daughter forgives a uh, mom or a dad, it's Jesus forgiving through them. And he also does it through pastors, too, in the church. We're authorized to speak the word of forgiveness to one another. You know, in Ephesians, forgive one another, Ephesians 4. And in Colossians as well. And when you read Matthew 18, that's, that's big too. You know, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Well, 70 times 7, Jesus says. Now, there's another interesting thing too in verse 23. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. You know, the gift of forgiveness that Jesus won on the cross can be refused. Um, there are people sometimes we run into them and You'll come, you'll talk to them and say, so you've sinned in this matter, and we're here to forgive you. You know, that's all Matthew 18 is all about, you know. If your brother sins against you, you go to them, you know, mm-hmm. to win them. To win them is to forgive them. But if you go to somebody and you say, now, uh, you've sinned in this, in this matter, and I'm here to forgive you, and they say, oh, I haven't sinned. Who do you think you are? <laughs> and therefore, yeah. I don't want any of your forgiveness. Really? You mean you really don't want to hear that Jesus died for this sin? And that you don't want to hear that you're forgiven? No, I have no use of this Jesus and his forgiveness. Well, when you're dealing with that kind of a person, based upon this text in John 20, you have to say to them, all right, um, have it your way. Your sins are not forgiven. And when you want to live like this, you do so at your own peril. Uh, I always like to say it this way, Bill. This is a coolmanism. It's going to be hellacious for you. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's what I wanted to say from those verses. And okay. that's why the church, well, let me say it this way. Pastors have been are commanded to forgive sins. This text is always read when a pastor is ordained. John 20, 19 to 23. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus mandates, commands the pastors forgive sins. Why? Is, because Jesus won that forgiveness on the cross, and he wants it delivered and heard. Yeah. Faith comes by hearing. Brent, is it a, a human confirmation? Is it is it to give people an understanding that they have been forgiven and they have admitted their sins and repented? And the pastor says, understand, 
God has forgiven you, and I'm giving you that announcement so you understand you, in fact, have been forgiven. It's yes and more. Yet okay. what you said is true and more. The forgiveness is actually delivered through the words spoken, huh. the absolution. Remember, huh. God does what he said. God does things through his word. So in the beginning, let there be light. How did he do it? He spoke it. Right. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, come out. And his word did what it said. So this divine word, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Um, it's, it, it, it not only announces it, but it actually gives the forgiveness. For example, the parallel accounts, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, namely whatever you forgive on earth, Jesus says what? Is loosed in heaven. That means before God. So mm-hmm. to answer your question one more time, is the forgiveness spoken an announcement? Yes, but it also delivers it. Okay. And w- what's the point of that? Because faith can't live on doubts. Faith lives on certainty, the certainty of God's word. I am forgiven. How do I know that? Because Jesus just told me. Mm-hmm. So let me create a scenario, Brent. I have done some grievous act against a brother, and I feel remorseful. I've apologized to him. I've confessed my sin to God, and I think of 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's uh, one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. I go and confess my sin, and yet I sometimes feel when I go to church a little nagged by this whole thing, like, "Ah, I don't know if I've been fully forgiven or am I in a righteous place with God, and then I admit to a pastor and I say, I have committed this sin, and through your words, you have absolved me, but I think I asked for repentance a couple days ago, so I'm absolved them then as well. Correct. Okay. Yes, it's a both. That's helpful. It's a both. Okay. Yeah, so you can confess your sin anywhere, anytime to God, and you ask him to forgive you. Why? Because Jesus died for me, and you trust that. Yes. And in the scenario you just gave, it, it nags you and it bothers you. So you go to the pastor. For what reason? Reverend, I want you to tell me. Tell me one more time. I'm begging you. Tell me, please. I, can, I live on the word of forgiveness. Tell me. Mm-hmm. Tell me. And it's not to take away of, of, your, of your confession uh, on your own, you know, without yeah. the pastor. But it's, that's what pastors are for. So I'll say it like this. Well, Jesus has sent me to tell you this. Now oh, believe nice. it. Trust it. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And that's always a nice thing. Yeah, yeah. And that, by the way, this is what the church is all about. The, the, the church primarily is all about what? Making sure that that forgiveness of sins that Jesus won on the cross gets delivered into people's ears and hearts so that they will believe it. Because faith, faith comes by hearing that word, the word of Christ, Romans 10. And uh, faith can only live on that. Yeah. The righteous live by faith. Mm-hmm. My guest is Pastor Brent Kuhlman, and you can learn about him at his blog if you want to head over there, brentkuhlman.wordpress.com. Brent, B-R-E-N-T, Kuhlman, K-U-H-L-M-A-N, brentkuhlman.wordpress.com. We're talking about John 20, and we'll be right back with lots more.
with Pastor Brent Kuhlman. We're talking today about John 20, fascinating uh, passage and a really, really nice uh, discussion, especially on verse 23. And Brent, I think you said it well when you said this could be a chicken bone for people where they could find themselves in the weeds thinking, well, wait a minute, uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And I think that verse in itself has caused a lot of people a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah. But do we have to simply trust the Lord and what he says in this word? Amen. I love that. So That's why this text is so delicious. And I, I remind everybody that the parallel accounts are Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, when he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. I can say, Brent, I don't think I've really thought about the fact that not only are the disciples locked in a room and fearful, but they're also probably dealing with some personal shame and betrayal. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and in two verses says, peace be with you twice. Yeah. That's that shalom peace that is such a gift. Yeah, can you imagine? Now, the text doesn't say it, but can you imagine <laughs> what, what Peter and the apostle said? It's, oh, my word, what's he doing here? Oh, right. You know, because I know when I've sinned against someone and I think I've gotten away with it, and then I, I, all of a sudden they show up, <laughs> I see them somewhere, <laughs> yeah. I panic. Yeah, I love a pastor saying that. When I think I've done something wrong and I thought I've, I think I've got a, gotten away with it. <laughs> All right, let's um, let's talk a little bit more about this passage starting in 24. Okay. Thomas shows up, obviously one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told them, we've seen the Lord. Well, you'll notice right off the bat that uh, the verses we just looked at, 19 to 23, uh, Thomas wasn't there. So see what happens when you miss out on church? <laughs> <laughs> you miss what Touché. you miss. Well, you miss our Lord's words, our Lord's wounds, wow. his breath, yeah. and his spirit. <laughs> You're bringing it home, Pastor, today. That's, that's good counsel. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, so, but the text doesn't say why he was gone. Yeah. It just says he wasn't there. Yeah. And what's great about this is the disciples, they tell him what's happened. Thomas refuses to believe it. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. And this is interesting, I will never believe. Mm -hmm. And that is an accurate translation of the Greek. So what I'm, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down here, Bill, we all remember from my Sunday school uh, classes, we call Thomas Doubting Thomas. No, no, this, this isn't Doubting Thomas. This is I will never believe Thomas. This yeah. is serious. Okay, but uh, fortunately for Thomas, um, he was there the next Sunday when Jesus shows up here in verses 24 and following. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is, again, Jesus just, he pops in. He doesn't even knock, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he speaks another peace be with him. And so eight days later, Thomas is there, as I mentioned, and the doors are locked, and Jesus just comes and stands. And then another peace, another peace with them. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Don't disbelieve. And that's an accurate translation of the Greek. It's not don't doubt. It's stop disbelieving and believe. Mm -hmm. And then you get one of the most clearest confessions of who Jesus is in the New Testament, right here in John 20, when Thomas says, my Lord 
and my God. And then Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now let's, let's pick this apart. So Jesus, you know, he says, go ahead, Thomas. Why don't you go ahead? Put your finger here. See my hands? Stick your hand on my side. And why don't you believe? Stop this disbelieving nonsense. And by the way, I, don't you find this interesting too, Bill, that after we just finished reading uh, verse 23, if, um, if, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You would think Thomas would be the first candidate when he says, I will not believe. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen. Jesus goes after him to uh, forgive him. He speaks that peace just like he did a week before. And then he shows him that he truly is the Lord. And Thomas makes that great confession. Um, but let's, let's, let's just get to the heart of this. Faith doesn't come by touch. Um, I have to say that. And I have to say this, that faith doesn't come by sight. Faith comes by hearing. Now, in Thomas's case, the words of Jesus no longer be unbelieving, but believe. Um, we don't, my point is it's the words of Jesus that create this faith in Thomas, not the touch, not the sight. Are you, are you seeing what I'm doing here? Oh, yeah. Okay. Stop doubting and believe. Those are the yeah. words of Jesus. So when Jesus speaks, that's what, that's what turns Thomas from, from disbelieving to believing. So Thomas, the unbelieving skeptic, through the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he now becomes Thomas, the believer once again, Thomas, uh, the disciple, and now Thomas, the apostle. So have you believed because you've seen me, Jesus asked him? Well, the obvious answer is what? It's, it's no, because seeing doesn't make for believing. All right? So blessed are you, Thomas. Blessed are you. And, but blessed are those who haven't seen, you know. Mm-hmm. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So when you come to church, blessed are you, because you have the words of Jesus. Um, and for Lutherans, you know, who, what we confess about the Lord's Supper, you have his wounds, his body and blood, his Good Friday body and blood, mm-hmm. with the bread and the wine. And from his wounds, you have his peace. Okay? But, you know, Bill, there's a Thomas in all of us, isn't there? Um, we're all skeptics. We're all cynics. The old Adam in us is, anyway. Sure. Where we demand proof. And, you know, we need to repent of not taking God at his word. You know, our old sinful nature um, just simply refuses to believe, won't trust, and demands what? Well, God or Jesus, why don't you prove yourself to be true before I'll trust in you? Mm-hmm. you know, that's like Thomas. And uh, I've said it. So, you know, we all sound like Thomas, don't we, sometimes? You know, unless I see the, the nail, uh, nail marks and touch that spear mark, I won't believe it. And uh, I know I'm like those other disciples t- sometimes in that regard, um, where, the, where their sin wasn't the skepticism but the fear, hiding because they feared men. Uh, more than they, they do God, you know? So um, we, need to, we need to be repented of that. Um, and so we need to trust the word of Jesus. Yes, amen. Stop, stop disbelieving and believe. Yeah. You know, uh, Brent, I have a little bit of a vivid imagination at times, and I have to curb it because you, you had me so interested when you were talking about Thomas not being there when Jesus first appeared, like he had missed church because the text does not say where he was. And my little imagination is running to the thought of maybe Thomas is the brave one who the uh, disciple said, we need some food. And he'll go, well, I'll go get it. And he's <laughs> might have been putting himself at great personal risk going to get food for everyone else. 
I mean, this uh, is yeah. Then that, that of course, that's speculation. Of course, the it text is. Doesn't say, but uh, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah, but you always wonder. Uh, they they always sent somebody out to go get provisions, and you wonder they're fearful in an upper room. They're fearful uh, that night, and I'm thinking, I wonder if somebody was sent out, maybe Thomas, to go get some food. Now, I I, I don't put much stock in those little speculations. I just find them to be a playful exercise every once in a while. Yeah, well, let's have some more fun, shall we? Because oh, amen. I, on the one hand, let's thank God for, for Thomas here in this text. And what I mean by that is if uh, this, the, what we just read about Thomas brings veracity to John's gospel account. I mean, think about it. If you or I were making this stuff up to <laughs> deceive future generations, like a lot of Bible critics say, John wrote this, you know, to deceive people, or some later white man did it. Um, so if, if you're making all this stuff up to deceive future, future generations, or if you're writing, um, how shall I say this? If you're writing some kind of myth or a legend about a so-called resurrected Jesus, would you have one of his inner 12 of his disciples disbelieving the word of Jesus, questioning the good news and seeking evidence? Of course you wouldn't. Right. There's no way you would. You would have Thomas hearing the news that they'd seen the Lord, and Thomas would say what? Amen! Hallelujah! He's risen indeed, you know, if you're making this stuff up. But, you know, this is not what happened. Thomas didn't believe it, uh, even when he was told about it, on mm-hmm. really good authority, by the way, and eyewitness authority accounts. Yeah. Uh, he refuses to believe it until when? Until he personally sees and touches the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say that, for, uh, I want to make, what, make clear what I'm trying to say here, is uh, yeah. we, we, we know that the, the Bible is true because this is actually what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't made up stuff. No. They, they just give you the, the facts of the matter. Thank you so much for doing the show. Peace be with you. All right, Bye-bye. peace. Pastor Brent Kuhlman's been my guest. We will take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.